What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Do you have feelings about it? I'm so over all the controversy, but I am going to see it later on today. A lot of entertainment folks are just not decent human beings, and so it's very hard for me to evaluate like what culture I'm going to participate in according to like the moral character of the people uh, creating. And so, I was considering trying to like see if the bootleg man had it. To be quite honest, I, he doesn't yet. No, not yet. He doesn't have it yet. I was at the laundromat yesterday waiting for him. Bootleg man needs to do better. I would think it'd be out by now. He needs to step it up. He didn't. What's up, everyone, and welcome to Represent. I'm your host, as always, Aisha Harris, and today we've got a lot to talk about because we're going to be discussing what is perhaps the most controversial film of the year, Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation, which is about Nat Turner's infamous 19th century slave rebellion. Happy to say that today I've got my incredibly smart colleague and Slate's chief political correspondent, Jamal Bowie, joining me as a guest host to dive into this very fascinating subject. Welcome, Jamal, and thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I picked you not only because you're an excellent thinker and writer on race and politics, but because last year you co-hosted alongside Rebecca Onion, a great Slate Academy podcast series on the history of slavery, which you should all check out if you haven't already. And also, Jamal, you're just a big movie nerd. So you were basically, I felt, the perfect person to talk about this with. (laughs) (laughs) And um, you just saw it like a few hours ago, right? Right. I just came out the theater uh, about an hour and 15 minutes ago. Okay. So your thoughts are going to be fresh while mine are probably a little, well, they'll be a bit more formed in terms, because I saw the movie like two or three weeks ago. Um, So I actually might even have to like turn to you for some specifics if there's anything I've forgotten uh, while talking about this. But yeah, so let's just dive into it. And if you wouldn't mind, actually, if you could like briefly explain for those who are not aware of who Nat Turner is, who Nat Turner is and why he was such an important figure in slavery. Sure. So Nat Turner was a enslaved uh, man in Southampton, Virginia, which for those of you who don't know who you're, don't know your Virginia geography, why would you? Um, you're not a Virginian like I am. <laughs> uh, Southampton, Virginia is just west of Hampton Road. So Norfolk, Virginia, uh, Virginia Beach rather, um, uh, Suffolk, uh, Hampton, form sort of an area uh, on a peninsula in the southeast of Virginia. And Southampton County is just a couple hours west of that. I'm not even sure if it's a couple hours, but it's just west of that. Um, It is – it was like Hampton Roads in the – in Antebellum America, both an agricultural region and a slave-producing region. Um, Nat Turner, his rebellion happened in 1831. And by this time, Virginia was less of a – uh, agricultural exporting state and more of a slave exporting state. So its mm-hmm. main product for the rest of the country and primarily the the South was uh, were rather were enslaved people who were sold um, further south to kind of further the westward expansion of slavery. So Nat Turner is born in Southampton. Um, he grows up in Southampton. He learns to read. Uh, he is a preacher on the plantation, on the Turner Plantation. And in 1831, um, after some organization, he commences what would be the, the I think, believe the bloodiest slave rebellion um, of the United States' history, uh, in which him and a band of enslaved people uh, ended up uh, would kill sixty whites in the area, attempt to um, steal arms from a nearby armory, uh, which is where the rebellion would end. They would be uh, stopped there by local militia forces, 
and sort of the the importance of Nat Turner's rebellion, not just in terms of the immediate event, uh, which should be said, um, it should be said that Nat Turner's rebellion uh, sort of happens just a couple decades after the revolution in Haiti, and so there's already because of the revolution in Haiti a broad paranoia about slave uprisings within the South and further further west in the South in Louisiana and Mississippi, where there are far fewer whites and far more slaves. Slave owners in that area are far more repressive and far less willing to tolerate any kind of disobedience on their plantations for fear of a Haiti-like event. And so all of that is kind of in the air, and Nat mm-hmm. Turner's rebellion uh, being sort of the, the one of the largest and bloodiest of the, of the period, um, or again, of American slavery or United States slavery in general, ends up sort of sending that paranoia into overdrive. And so in the aftermath of the rebellion, um, about around 200 uh, African-Americans are, are executed, tortured, uh, killed, uh, most of them having nothing to do with the uh, with the with the rebellion, but uh, paranoia among local whites leads them to sort of lash out. Uh, Virginia, after Nat Turner's rebellion, passes laws mandating regular slave patrols, mandating that all I, I believe, and please, listeners, correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, but I believe that the laws mandating that white men in the area. Uh, are to be a part of a, a regular slave patrol come out of Nat Turner's Rebellion as our laws outlawing uh, the teaching of reading to enslaved people. So it ends up kind of uh, yielding in a, a massive backlash uh, within Virginia and throughout the South. I mean, Nat Turner's Rebellion, like the Haitian Revolution, becomes um, another cautionary tale for slave-owning whites of what happens when you don't have a uh, authoritarian hand on enslaved people. Right. So, I mean, all of that is to say that this is not something we usually expect Hollywood or any sort of movie studio to willingly want to portray is this idea of 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 black enslaved people rising up and and going against the their white slave owners like I that's part of what in the sort of build up around this film from its premiere at Sundance earlier this year up until now is sort of being held up as like this is a different movie this is not what we usually get we we see bloodshed we see black people black men in particular taking up agency and attacking these forces and the movie doesn't actually deal with sort of the consequences that you've mentioned here in terms of how many black people were murdered in the aftermath. Well, I think they mention it briefly. It's mentioned in past. Well, no, wait, now I'm forgetting. There, there is a scene. There's a scene after the rebellion. Um, That's more right. like a, a montage where you see sort of violence against enslaved people. So there's one scene of, you know, a group of men, women and children who've been hung um, two enslaved people who are, are uh, set on fire or right. immolated. Um, so yeah, there's there's some of that. I don't. I'm not sure it's necessarily connected. And there's a line of dialogue where uh, uh, Turner's uh, wife Cherry uh, explains to Turner that they're just killing black people until you turn yourself up. Right, right, yeah. So that that see, this is where you come in handy because you <laughs> just saw it. I can, I don't know how I could forget that part because that to me, and we can talk about a little bit about it later. But to, that to me was one of the more powerful and like striking moments was this sort of zoom, uh, and I believe that the same as the trailer for the movies, Nina Simone's. Um, Strange Fruit is playing over it, the montage, and it kind of zooms out from the body of these hanging, from these hanging black bodies very slowly. And that was just, uh, that was kind of overwhelming. But yeah, so I guess it does, it does touch on that a little bit. But to circle back around, so what do you think of, like, what are your initial thoughts having, you having seen it just very recently in the last few hours, what are your initial thoughts of the film, not as it necessarily portrays history but just as a movie itself as a movie yeah Yeah. you know as a movie i found it actually really disappointing um the the first thing this is going to sound sort of silly given i think the, the the topic but i think it's important um i just thought it looked really bad Um, really (laughs) like like aesthetically aesthetically just the there was i don't know if this was 
I think I have a pretty good good eye for intentional uses of color in mm-hmm. film, but I don't think this was intentional. The color correction was quite bad. I think the story of the film, right, is that uh, Parker uh, filmed it in a very short period of time. It was shot in like, you know, a month or so. And that kind of meant that by definition, they're doing a lot of shooting in, in bright afternoon. And it's yeah. mostly outside and they're in um, wooded areas most of the time, so it's a lot of shadows. And the thing about bright sunlight, afternoon light, and shadows is that um, sunlight has a color to it in the afternoon, and the color is blue, and you see that in shadows. And old film stocks, or even modern-day film stocks that are supposed to uh, capture color accurately, um, you see this. If you take a photo with some transparency film without any kind of warming filter at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in a shadowed area, it will have a blue cast to it um, because that's just the color of the light at the time. And so for me, I was just distracted the entire time by the fact that there throughout the film, there's this heavy blue cast that seems more the result of, you know, not using warming filters, which are at the during actual shooting and then not um, properly color correcting afterwards that I found really distracting in the same way I found the the the, the cinematography team um, seemed to not know how to adjust for the adjust their expo- exposing for the fact that they're shooting in that bright light. And so there are lots of scenes where I suppose you're supposed to kind of take in the beauty of these, uh, the, the mournful beauty of these um, vast white cotton fields, which I should say is a parenthetical. Virginia wasn't really a cotton producing state. So that was kind of weird. Yeah, there were there were quite a few things that were sort of <laughs> historically inaccurate about the way it perceived or depicted Virginia. But you'd have like the sky completely blown out um, because it was, you know, they were were trying to adequately illuminate um, the actors. But like, you know, you fix that problem with additional lighting and I guess they just didn't use as much as they should have. And I just found that stuff really, really distracting the entire time. Anyway, so I thought it wasn't a very aesthetically pleasing uh, film uh, for those reasons. But beyond that, I just, I don't know, like, you know, the the story, Nat Turner's Rebellion is, you know, both uh, uh, in, in ways it's tragic and, um, you know, a, a, I'm not going to say sad event, but sort of an event that has a lot of pathos to it. It's also a very thrilling event if you're thinking about cinematically, sort of um, rebellions happening under the cover of night, um, the process by which Turner comes to believe that this kind of violence is necessary is very interesting, very fascinating. The dynamic between uh, Turner and his owner, who was also sort of a childhood playmate, um, also interesting. So you have you have these elements of the story that I think – of the general Nat Turner story, not the film in particular, that I think have a lot uh, you can mine. But within the film, it was all just very inert. Um, I thought – I thought especially the last, the, the actual rebellion was just like not good. It was boring and it was, you know, muddy, muddled. And um, I don't know. I, I was really, I came out of that film just sort of thinking that like this was, this was a, maybe a better than average television movie. Mm. Yeah. I, so I didn't quite feel that way in the moment while watching it. Um, first of all, I am, while I have studied film, I did not particularly notice all of the the very technical like color aspects that you did. Uh, but you are also, it should be noted, you also are really into photography. So that's uh, an as- that's a part of you that I think you were able to pick up more quickly than I would have. Um, I mean, I do agree that this film, obviously, Nate Parker, he is a first time filmmaker, and again, he made this film in a very short amount of time and on very limited funds. That being said, I do think part of the issue with this movie is that it did have so much hype. And I think that had it not come out of Sundance on the heels of Oscar So White, when people, Hollywood in particular, were looking for something to crown and to say, hey, we're not going to be racist anymore. or We're not going to be exclusive anymore. We they that was part of the reason I think why this movie was so well hyped. And I think a lot of people feel the same way at this point after having seen it. It's like, even as a movie, it's not that interesting. Um, 
And I agree with you that the pathos is something that isn't isn't really touched upon. We I mean, I think there are some things to be said for the fact that we do see a little bit of like what day to day life as a slave might have been like for Nat Turner and for the people around him. Um, There's a lot of scenes where like nothing really happens. You see uh, there's there's interactions and there's sort of the buildup between the the master who is his name is Sam Turner, correct? Yeah, Sam Turner. That's right. Right. So Sam Turner, who is played by Army Hammer. And I would like to talk a little bit about that dynamic, because I think there is to the film's credit, there is no, quote unquote, good white person in a way where if you think about a lot of actually pretty much every movie about slavery, there is at least one good white person. You've got you know, 12 Years a Slave, Brad Pitt's character comes in the last, like, 30 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever, and he's the savior. Even Brad Pitt has, I think, said on the record that that was, like, he put himself in there because that was one of the reasons the movie got funded. Um, <laughs> and then you also have Django Unchained with Christoph Waltz's character who helps Jimmy Fox's character, Django. It's against the law for niggas to ride horses in this territory. This is my valet. My valet does not walk. I said niggas... On horses. His name is Django. He's a free man. He can ride what he pleases. And what I think is interesting about this movie, in which I can see sort of scaring off certain white people, is the fact that there is no real good white character. I mean, Sam is the closest. Like, he's clearly conflicted to some extent about his whiteness and owning slaves, but he's definitely not conflicted enough to ever, like, let them free or even consider letting them free. I mean, what do you think about that? Like, do you agree with me or am I off? Like, does he still seem too good for a movie like this? No, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think, um, you know, it's it's sort of, it's funny. I, I thought Sam was one of the more interesting characters in the movie for precisely those reasons that he does seem to have this conflict within him about slavery that is tied to his childhood and now adult relationship with Nat Turner. But at the same time, he's, he is, you know, he is a slave owner. He does not oppose institution of slavery. He has bought in fully. Um, but I think perceives himself to be something of a humane slave owner. And so when they begin to visit plantations on Turner's preaching tour, which he's doing, um, uh, Turner, uh, Sam Turner is basically renting out Nat Turner as a preacher to pay to to raise money to basically save the plantation, mm-hmm. um, and they they come upon uh, other plantations where enslaved people are uh, treated utterly brut- uh, brutally. You know, Sam seems to be very disturbed by this. I so I I thought this was like this is one of those parts of the movie that I thought could have made the core for a more, more interesting story. Because I think, I think there's something to the idea that basically Sam and Nat are on parallel tracks going in opposite directions, right? That like Nat Turner is, is an enslaved person seeing the slave brutality, brutality against slaves rather. And it's radicalizing him um, more and more and more. Sam is seeing the same things and it doesn't radicalize him. It doesn't turn him against the institution. In a way, it sort of makes him um, – it, it, it sort of makes for him, I guess in his mind, the burden of owning slaves even heavier and, and begins to make him colder and harder in his treatment of Nat. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something there uh, as you know, these two men um, having this very personal relationship and this very um, fraught relationship with their settings – um, that I don't think the movie really explored as much as it could, which I, I just thought was I, I don't know I was I was disappointed. Like the the part of the movie I liked the most was this preaching tour, and I thought it, I thought there could have been much more there. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean that was that was great. Like I thought in in terms of, and I think that was the closest we get to both that relationship between Sam and and Nat, but also the internal understanding of of Nat and going through not quite a montage, but going like scene by scene, especially the scene where he goes to one of the plantations to to preach to them. And he's looking at these totally broken down slaves and trying to encourage them to, you know, seek, um, seek um, righteousness and, and, and love and peace and all the other things you talk about when you're preaching about God. Um, 
And to me, that was the closest we got to sort of understanding what he wanted, like why he he was driven to do this outside of the and I mean, this could also can talk about this a little bit later, but also aside from that fact of the women in his life being raped and beaten, um, that was those were the two sort of only understandings we have, of like what drove him to want to rebel. But yeah, the relationships overall, I mean, of them, that Sam Nat relationship is probably the most interesting um, and had so much potential and just just falls at the wayside. I think that's right. And I mean, honestly, I think the Sam Nat relationship is the only one you could really call a relationship in the film. Because as you, I think you alluded to Nat Turner's relationship with the women of the film um, is is not I mean, it's basically sort of they, they act as. Uh, they act as motivators primarily for Nat Turner. Um, they don't really seem to have much in the way of interior lives, and there are gl- I mean, there are glimpses of it, but I think it's just much more the actors than it is the screenplay. So when um, when Nat Turner's grandmother is bandaging up his wounds after he's been whipped uh, on Sam's order, there's just during that scene, she says, you know, she recounts how she saw um, his grandfather die, and that he she she. Praise, uh, she praises God that he did die when he did before they were brought over, presu- before presumably they were brought over from uh, Africa to the United States. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't have had to witness any of that. And that was like a really interesting, that was like really, you know, that was something to explore. Like we just got a glimpse into this woman as a character. Um, and that that's all we got, just to, this glimpse. And I, I, you know, given how, uh, given how the rest of the, the figures in the film don't have much in the way of real characterization. I my my hunch is that that was just like a, a nicely written line and some good delivery. Um, uh, much more than any attempt to really flesh out uh, that woman. And I, I just thought that was the case again and again and again. That the women characters, uh, both both enslaved people and whites, um, existed primarily uh, in their relationship to Nat Turner. Yeah, I mean. When you're talking about the white female characters, there's, I mean, early on we see uh, Nat talk to, uh, I I can't remember what the exchange was, but he talks to some woman who I think she either he dropped, I think her son dropped something. Am I getting this right? right, You're right. Her her son drops a doll and he um, hands it to her, gives it to her. Yeah, yeah, and then her husband he goes over and he immediately you know is is wants to punish Nat for talking to a white woman. So you have stuff like that. You have Mrs., who is Sam's mother, um, and who sort of points him out at the beginning of the film. And this is another problem I kind of had with the movie was, and I and this is a problem that I think all biopics have, but it has this sort of exceptional Negro quality about it that just permeates it. And, and, I, and I get the point of it, to some extent, because in the beginning of the film, you see a young Nat and Mrs. Uh, his um, Sam's mother. She, you know, she's recognizes that Nat is exceptional compared to all the other slaves on on the plantation, and she points out to his and she asks his mother if she can start teaching him how to read. And so you have this sort of. Um, cultivation there's also a moment i think in the beginning early on when his father before he runs away at the beginning of the film his father says something along the lines of like you're a chosen one or you're one of god's people and there's something about that sort of lionizing in a way and again i get that that's the like you don't make biopics about non-exceptional people but i feel like it relies too heavily on these sort of tropes and doesn't explored any further it's just like oh well yeah he's meant to he's he's supposed to because he's you know everyone else around him sees it but like i I never fully understand like why we as an audience are supposed to see why is he this exceptional person and i think that goes back to the idea of there not being enough internal understanding of who nat is right i mean we get that as a a child we don't really get to see his like development the things he experiences there's sort of there's sort of very little of that Throughout, I mean, it's it's funny, right? Because there's the, the I feel like the the er text for a lot of rebellion movies is Spartacus with Kirk Douglas, right. and um, 
uh, Spartacus devotes a lot of its time to showing <laughs> how how our, our titular hero becomes the kind of person who would who would rebel. Um, uh, Spartacus experiences love. He he experiences deep kindness and compassion. He uh, sees the depravity of the people who own him and who run the gladiatorial games, and it all comes to a head. There's so little of that. I, I grew up a church-going kid, and one of my favorite little stories in the Christian Bible is of Jesus as a 13-year-old. And he is like just like hanging out with a bunch of other uh, uh, Jewish rabbis, and they're talking, and they're talking about like you know religion with God. And his parents had lost him; they had no idea where he was, and they find him doing this. And they're sort of like, "Oh wow, you know, there's 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 Jesus, there's our son doing his thing." Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great little story because it, at first it's sort of like Jesus is a kid, and it, it's sort of human. It's it's obviously serving the purpose of trying to show the audience that like this guy, this kid was destined to become the savior of mankind. Look how smart and intelligent he is as a child. But it's also kind of a, a neat moment. Um, you know, it gives you a, a glimpse of the kind of child he might have been. He's curious. Um, he's uh, a little uh, rambunctious maybe, just getting away from his parents like that. It, it tells you something about the character of Jesus. And we didn't really get any of that in this movie. Um, we didn't really get anything that tells you anything really about the character of Nat Turner. Instead, he, he he's introduced as our chosen person. He, you know, we get a brief glimpse into his childhood where he learns how to read um, and, and begins preaching. And then, boom, he's an adult and he's a preacher and he is still the chosen one and everything else is just like moving you along towards um, uh, his his destiny. There, there are no moments of doubt. There are no moments of um, conflict within him. It's all, you know, moving uh, inexorably towards his, his destiny. And that's just kind of, it's boring. Yeah, I mean, I would say that there is one, I think there's one moment we get of not doubt per se, but of reflection that is, it's very subtle and, I wish there had been more moments like this, but there's the moment after he's already started to rebel and when he kills Sam, after killing Sam, he throws up outside. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, we, how often do we see someone in the midst, in a movie, in the midst of committing these heinous, I mean, they're heinous, I guess, they're terrible crimes, um, and then sort of having this gut like visceral reaction to what they're doing like it gives it give it gave him like a moment of sort of yes you're a real person <laughs> like obviously he's been, he was somewhat conflicted about this because there that goes back to their relationship of their it not being so cut and dry and and the fact that you know they did have in a weird twisted way a bond that i think a lot of this is me projecting, but I think a lot of slave owners and masters might have had in real life. So that was like the one moment where I thought this is a nice touch of of giving us a little bit of like this internal conflict that uh, Nat Turner is having. But that was just a moment. Right. And also, you're not projecting at all. I mean, that's very much the, the language of slavery, slave uh, property kind of obscures the fact that these were in fact human persons living together in close proximity. And there were you know the relationships. There were relation. There were relationships of a sort, and they were very, very fraught. Yeah, and I'd like to go back a little bit to the idea of of women in this movie not having agency. Um, I will shamelessly plug. I, I did an interview with an academic. Uh, her name is uh, Dr. Vanessa Holden, and she was able to speak with me about what the realities were in real life of of slave women and their involvement in the Nat Turner. Rebellions, And she's specifically working on a book right now about that very subject. Because when I was watching the movie, I noticed that there were zero women present in this rebellion. And before that, you know, you see the women in his life. It's really like mostly we mostly see women in his life outside of Sam um, during the beginning of it. And then all of a sudden they just completely disappear. And you don't see them when he goes off on this uh, multi-day rebellion. And it just really in this touches on the larger idea of women in slavery and, and how even though we, we we do have a lot of we have no limit of, of films about slavery most of them I would say are to, if they are told from the perspective of the slave they're told from the perspective of the male slave um, I can think of very few movies that either show or TV shows that balance out the two or or primarily focused from a female perspective. And I think it's a disservice to this movie because 
part of what Nate Parker himself is saying and talking about in his discussion around the film is like, I want to essentially wants to start a revolution. He wants to make a different kind of slave movie. And I think in this respect, he didn't make a different kind of slave movie. This feels like lots of movies in which women in history are just completely erased. And as Dr. Holden told me, women were absolutely involved with the the rebellions because they were there. There was no way they couldn't be there. These were happening in the homes. And that Jerusalem uh, sequence, the sort of uh, <laughs> brave heart uh, back and forth. And I think I think uh, Nate Parker himself has said he's consulted with Mel Gibson or he's Braveheart somehow inspired the movie. You can totally tell in that scene where it's uh, the slaves against the, the white militia. And that scene like just never actually happened. So most of it happened within the home. That idea of of women not being involved is it's very disappointing to me, aside from the the whole other aspect of women's rape being like the primary catalyst for why he even embarks on this rebellion in the first place. Right. No, I think I think, uh, you know, I agree with all of that 100 percent. It's, you know, there especially all the recent research and historiography on enslaved people makes it very clear that women played um, uh, an integral role in sort of every aspect of of life and were certainly a part of rebellions, both pa- both passive and um, explicit. And, and it was very strange watching the flick to see – you're right. At a certain point, there are just no more women in the film um, and it's, it's jarring uh, to see how much that – how much they're essentially erased from the narrative of Nat Turner. Now, part of me wonders, like, so there's another side to this, I think, and I think it's a side that um, Tarantino was trying to do with Django Unchained, where I see parallels here in that it's trying to turn the black woman in a way, like, to sort of overcorrect for the idea that black slaves, female slaves, were in many ways seen as no different from black men. So there was no sort of hierarchy in the same way that you have with white men and white women where, you know, white women are put on a pedestal and are to be fawned over. Like, no, black women were also, they were also working in the cotton fields. They did the same manual labor as men. And so I wonder, and I think this is kind of what he's doing, and and it's still kind of screwed up to do it this way, but sort of the way he he creates these characters, these female characters, him and his co-writer, Jean Celestine, um, they have Cherry, his wife, who's played by Asia Naomi King, and she's just sort of they, – they try to create this love story, like this beautiful love story. And that's great. I love to see black love. Like, yay. Um, but, at the same, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like she has – she's not a person in this black love relationship. Like she's just there. And he saves her from um, you know, being taken by another harsher uh, – potentially harsher um, master because that's how they meet in the beginning. Like him and Sam roll up on a sale of a sale of slaves and he asks Sam, like you should buy her. And then you also have Gabrielle Union who I don't think she says a single word in the entire movie. If I remember correctly, I don't think she has a line. Um, She's there. You see her in a brief montage early on where she's getting married. And then later you see her serving and and being forced to – she's raped. Um, But we don't actually see her uh, or hear her talk, if I remember correctly. So you have these women and they're put on a pedestal in a way by Nate Parker and Jean Celestine. But then, again, they're put on a pedestal and then they're treated like these completely one-dimensional – I don't even know if I call it one-dimensional. I mean they're they're inert. Yeah. They they don't do anything. Right. I mean, I I generally think, and I, I think you're you're very much right that the template of the slave movie is not just very stale, but it's it's extraordinarily male centric. And I'm I think we're way past time for a movie about slavery or, or taking place at this time to deal primarily with the experiences of enslaved women. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there are so many different ways you can approach that. I myself, because of this is just sort of where my t- both where my tastes go and where my mind goes when thinking about slavery in an academic sense, think that there's a lot to mine there with thinking of enslavement um, as being uh, uh, basically akin to living in a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where and you 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 know to 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 Parker's somewhat credit here you get a sense of this like the scene where uh, Gabrielle Union's character is raped right could be the basis for like it contains within itself the kernel of an idea about an entire movie right where like you yeah. you you exist in this world where at any moment. Um, some random man can demand you. Yeah, and we don't we don't actually see the rape either, which right. I think is interesting in a way, considering these other things that I'm sure we'll talk about in a second. Yeah, and, and that's that's those that's the kind of thing that really can. Um, uh, there, there's an inter- there's an interesting psychological story to tell there about the women who experience that, and no one seems to be interested in telling that story. Yeah, I mean, it's gotten it took long enough for a feature film like this to be made. Um, and so I hate to say it, but obviously there are, are there are baby steps always happening in terms of what Hollywood and, and, you know, the indie film industry as well will, you know, move towards. You have to jump through one hurdle before you get to another. And in, in a way, I do think it's important to not discount, as we talked about, how radical just the idea of this movie being made in the first place is even if it's not the movie we might have wanted about Nat Turner um, it is interesting and I think to its credit it's a good thing in a way that we are at a point now where we can make a movie in which all the white people at the end die Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, and and at the hands of people who they've oppressed and that's rare to find yeah so if I'm gonna you know should be as generous as I can about the film. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. And I think that there's something to be said for a movie where Amer- white Americans are specifically portrayed as the villains. That even even the most sympathetic whites are, in fact, not that sympathetic at all. Um, in that you, the audience, knows that the only way to get actual liberation for um, the enslaved characters is for the whites to just be gone. I mean, I think that is um, genuinely different and perhaps radical. I just wish that it could have been done through the vehicle of a better movie. Yeah. I, you know, I'm sort of very reluctant to give credit to flicks for what they're trying to do um, rather than what they're actually doing. Uh, that's that's fair. That's absolutely fair. And um, I think I feel about Birth of a Nation the same way I feel about Red Tails. <laughs> <laughs> that very bad George Lucas movie about the Tuskegee. Yeah. Wait, easy, easy. We got to take it head on. Low, so the guns can't hit us. It's my decision, Lightning. Stay in formation. That, you know, it was just not a good movie. And the fact that it's it was trying to tell an important story um, shouldn't, shouldn't be a... Uh, shouldn't be an apology for the fact that it was just bad filmmaking. And here at Birth of a Nation, I think that on the balance, this is not a very good movie. Well, there's that word, important, um, which uh, is something I feel like we are always saddled with as people of color, or really any demographic uh, that is not very often represented or represented in a fair or accurate way. Um I I struggle because on the one hand, obviously you and I both saw the movie and I don't detract from anyone who decides not to see the movie for various reasons, whether it's because they're sick of slave movies. I think to some extent we all are, um, or at least we're, we're sick of those being the ones that the Oscars tend to like. And those being the ones that, you know, are considered the prestige black films. Um, but then on the other, like, would I recommend this to people to pay their money to go see? And when I first came out of the movie, I thought, yeah, why not? I mean, if you don't have any, if you don't feel conflicted or if you feel like you need to see the movie, um, whether it's to be in on the Oscar conversation or whether it's to be in on the general conversation around Nate Parker and everything about him, I would have said, yeah, go see it. And now I'm just like, eh, 
the more I think about it, the more I feel like, you know, watch it on demand or what, like, watch it when it's on Netflix. <laughs> and I think, I do think that it's, it's an important, like, it's going to, I think it will wind up being an important part of film history and black film history, but definitely not in the way that Nate Parker hoped it would be. Like, even if we didn't have these terrible reactions he's had to the rape allegations that have resurfaced over via various interviews and discussions about what happened and what didn't happen. I do think that it, eventually there would have been a backlash. Like more people would have seen the movie, not in the light of the Oscar So White campaign. And I think a lot of people would be like, I mean, this movie was, it's not a terrible movie. Like I, I, I think it's better than, I think it's better than, well, uh, to be honest, I haven't seen Red Tails, and I refuse to see Red Tails. Um, <laughs> but I met. I, okay, <laughs> it's, it's better than Red Tails. Okay, I ima- so I was going to say, I imagine it's better than Red Tails. Um, but yeah, the 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 idea of it being important, and that's something he said actually on, in a recent interview, Good Morning America. He was interviewed by Robin Roberts, and he got a little testy. And, you know, she was pressing him on these rape allegations. He was like, I've talked about this, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, At some point, you know, we gotta ask ourselves, like, why are we, you know, is this a film that is important to us? You know, and is it important to, especially people like you and I, you know, being the fact that, you know, to face injustice every day, you know, in this country and to be inundated with it with, on the news with injustice and justice. The question is, how do we, how do we handle it? How do we approach it? I, I go back and forth on it. I think it's important to black film history and we can look at it through the lens of, was this a good? Is this a good film? Is this does this um, stand as a movie that is that was worth making? Um, but I don't think it's important. This is where I'm coming down. I'm finally going to make my decision after talking about this for the last few minutes. I'm coming down on the idea that I don't think anyone who doesn't see the film will be worse off for it. What do you think? I'm on the same page. I, insofar that this film matters. I think it is interesting as a part of what I think is a larger um, uh, return to the slave film after a long time of these kind of movies not really being made. And so in the last couple of years, you know, as you mentioned, 12 Years a Slave and Django Unchained, um, there is the remake of Roots. There is the television show Underground, which I, I have not seen. Um, there uh, is in popular scholarship more look look looks at in discussion of slavery. Um, slavery is sort of there's the new museum, the National Museum of African American History, which has a major uh, section devoted to the uh, slave trade and to slavery. I think I think slavery is reentering the popular consciousness, and we're talking about it more. Um, and Given that context, I think Birth of a Nation is sort of an interesting piece of the pop cultural conversation, um, a very yeah. flawed one. But as a film, as you know, something I would say to people, it's important they see this. I just don't think that's the case. I I I, I generally push against the idea that um, that we should burden films with that kind of weight. Whether or not a film is important will become apparent in, in, the, in the scheme of things, in time. We'll see if it's important by how people react to it and how people engage it. Um, that's why, you know, with 12 Years a Slave, for instance, I, I saw it, I very much enjoyed it. I think that movie is important, but it's important because of the reaction that it brought and how people engaged it. It's not important because, you know, during the PR campaign, people said this is an important movie, you have to see it. Not at all. Um, uh, and in the same way, you know, movies that people may not have described as important at the time. Um, uh, and here I'm thinking of black exploitation films. I think in the in the in the in the in the scheme of things, turned yeah. out to have been very important, um, very important for how uh, Black Americans understood themselves in the relationship to pop- popular culture. Very important um, in terms of the kinds of artistic uh, expression that came through them. Um, uh, and so, you know, we 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 realized that later. And uh, it didn't require someone to say, well, you know, you really have to see the movie Boss Nigger because it's important. Um, no one said that, although it's a very entertaining yeah. movie. And, and it also it. It, I feel like those movies you can see and that goes back to your point about you need time is that you can see the influences of those films and the influences that 
these films have made, like the black exploitation films, that is what makes them important to some extent. Even if you have someone like Tarantino who is stealing from Bosniger very blatantly in some ways. Oh man, so blatantly. So blatantly. <laughs> and and even Antoine Fuqua for the his recent The Magnificent Seven, like he's Denzel's totally sporting the Fred Williamson uh facial hair and has like the same all black getup as uh, the star of that black exploitation film. But yeah, that is where you see the the influence and the importance. And and I wonder, I, I, I don't, I can't see Birth of a Nation standing in in that way and, and being taught in that way, whether you think in, in schools or, or or anything like that. And and I do think, I mean, I, to some extent, I applaud Nate Parker's um, chutzpah for, you know, naming this movie The Birth of a Nation uh, in to sort of correct for the original Birth of a, of a Nation and the the damage, like, and you cannot deny the damage that that movie did and the influence that that original movie had. But I think he also did himself a disservice by doing that because now, no, like, no one is going to, I don't think anyone's really going to think that oh, this makes up for 100 plus years of <laughs> Birth of a Nation, the original version. It's just, not, it's just not possible. Right. It's funny. There's this odd contrast, right? Because, you know, I, the, the Birth of a Nation is like a, basically a mediocre film and it doesn't set up – it doesn't set out to accomplish what its name implies. The Birth of a Nation is an utterly odious film morally but is a sort of a remarkable piece of filmmaking, right? Like yeah. it's it's – I I recently watched the remastered version like last year. And the thing about that film is it's again it's it's utterly morally odious, but it's a it's a well made piece of filmmaking. It's good and exciting. And I think part of its part of the reason why it ended up being so important for ill is precisely because of its quality. Mm, yeah. I mean I I I appreciate. I actually was very happy to learn that this Birth of a Nation is only two hours long, whereas the original <laughs> one was like three plus hours long. Right, um, the original one is uh, that's that's uh, if you're gonna watch that, which I think if you're interested in film as like a as like a, the history of film, it's actually really important to watch it. Yeah, um, like that, that's one of the few movies I can think of where it's like you should watch it if you care at all about film, like or even just. The, the the history of our country and race relations in general. Like, everything, I feel like, goes back to that or Gone with the Wind in right. terms of importance influ- and influence. Um, and I think, I, I, I do believe that there is a version of the Nat Turner st- story to tell that could be truly excellent and really kind of reshape how people think about both slavery and film storytelling and sort of, Nat Turner in our popular culture. And one sort of interesting thing is I think I, – I do think that the time is ripe for reevaluation of Nat Turner in the same way I think the time is ripe for reevaluation, reevaluation of John Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things I've I recently heard or watched was during the dedication of the National Museum of African American History, President George W. Bush gave a speech and in, in his list of heroes of um, the African American community, heroes of the United States, he listed Nat Turner. For centuries, slavery and segregation seemed permanent, permanent parts of our national life. But not to Nat Turner, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, or Martin Luther King Jr. Which is like a quietly like remarkable moment. Yeah. Uh, and that to me is a sign that like, yeah, this we're, we're at a point where I think we can have interesting conversations and produce interesting work about um, about the men and women during the antebellum period who killed in defense of freedom and liberty um, mm-hmm. and who killed Americans, other Americans uh, in and um, uh, in ways that invite like, you know, real moral conflict and, and discussion. So that's what I'll say that I'm just like kind of disappointed here. Like there's an opportunity here and I just think Nate Parker um, missed it. So, 
so to wrap things up, uh, like we do on the show whenever we have a guest co-host, we're going to jump into our Plus or Delta segment. And I think since we were pretty harsh and down on Birth of a Nation and would probably consider this a Delta, we're just going to do our pluses. Uh, <laughs> so, Jamel, what was your recent plus in, in representation? So my, my recent plus is I rewatched the most recent Marvel movie. I think it's the most recent, uh, Captain America Civil War. Mm-hmm. And about midway through, I kind of realized that this was a mainstream, you know, billion-dollar superhero movie where three of the principal cast members were, were uh, black. And uh, it was kind of – it felt completely natural. And I thought that was cool. It still could could be better, still could be black women. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be other uh, people of other uh, ethnicities and, and racial groups. But, you know, given the extent to which uh, mainstream blockbusters are still very, very white, the Fast and Furious notwithstanding, um, I was it – was, it was a nice thing to see. I had, I had sort of forgotten about that. And it's like, oh, look, you got, you got Black Panther, you got Falcon, War Machine. Cool. Wait, who plays War – this is where I, I admit my – Don Cheadle. Oh, right. Yeah, I <laughs> – Marvel is not exactly my uh, area of expertise, and I have not seen any of the Captain America movies. I'm going to admit that now. You can shame me later. Um, <laughs> but yes, that's the, yeah, that's a great. Isn't it nice when these things are like sometimes just not so obvious? They just kind of crop up, and you're like, oh, that was pleasant. Like it's not like bashed into your brain, and like oh, right, this right. is important. <laughs> this right, is right. important it, for us. Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's when it's just like a natural part of the world um, that you know. It feels nice. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel about this like TV season, uh, which I guess could be my plus. But my main plus is going to be the fact that I've just been jamming out to freaking Solange for the last like two weeks <laughs> straight. <laughs> it's been mostly Solange and I cannot her her new album, A Seat at the Table. I can't say enough like how how much I and I think many of us needed this album right now. And it just feels like coming off of, I feel like this whole year has been really good for black music, but like this album in particular and the videos that come with it and just showing black beauty in so many different forms and and these beautiful black aesthetics and just unapologetically, undeniably black. I am just so, I'm so tickled. And I and I feel like you know it's it's actually helped me get through some stuff. So it's the power of music and the imagery that those lyrics can create. So yeah, that's that, that's my plus. Um, thank you again, Jamel, for coming on the show today. It was awesome to have you, and I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to talk about something a little more. Uh, happy (laughs) 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 or 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 better just not as you know disappointing but yeah it was it was great to have you on no my i'm happy to join you anytime and listeners you can subscribe to us on itunes megaphone stitcher or any other place you find your podcasts and the subject of nate parker's rape allegations and the controversy around them is very important so if you're looking for an even deeper dive into all of that there are a number of different articles and podcasts we can recommend to you, and we'll link to those in the show notes. One of them is a really interesting conversation with Roxanne Gay on our sister podcast about race. So check that out, and you can find a link for that in particular in the show notes as well. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verilyn Williams, and the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Licktig. Andy Bowers is Chief Content Officer of Panoply, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. Music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Music.